0: Hello and welcome to another edition of Todd Talks Bible. This engaging discipleship-based Bible study is sponsored by Church Discipleship Ministries. And our teacher is Todd Tolls, the founder and director of CDM. A career firefighter captain before entering the ministry, Todd founded Church Discipleship Ministries to equip and empower believers to fulfill your calling to be a spiritual warrior dedicated to fulfilling the Great Commission. Let's listen in now as Todd Talks Bible.
1: Is there really a throne where God sits up in heaven? And what's this about these four living beings that are hovering around? And why is there a ceremony celebrating the opening of the scroll of the seven seals? Well, let's talk about these things and more coming up next. Hi, brothers and sisters. My name is Todd Toles, and I'm the director of Church Discipleship Ministries. I want to welcome you to our discipleship Program, Todd Talks Bible. Today, we are seeing a glimpse of the throne room of God up in heaven. In Revelation chapter 4 and 5, we are allowed to see a little bit of how heaven interacts and some of the action up there that's going on. Now, to be honest with you, there's not a whole lot of insight I can share about these two chapters, but these two chapters are very important anyway, to, especially to reflect on and see and understand the power and majesty of God. But there are a few actions and little things that happen up there, a few incidents in these two chapters that the Bible does share some light on. So what I thought I'd do today is mainly read these passages because they're very important. You don't want to skip over them. But I will pause just every now and then to show the little bit of light that the Scripture has to explain some of the action that's going on in these two scenes. All right, so let's just dive in and get started. First of all, let's get in Revelation chapter four, verse one. Then I looked, I saw a door standing open in heaven, and the same voice I had heard before spoke to me with the sound of a mighty trumpet blast. The voice said, come up here, and I will show you what must happen after these things. Now, we talked about this extensively last session, and I'm not gonna go into it again, but just to sum up, this is not uh, an example of the re- a rapture. This is not a metaphor or representation of the rapture. This is simply an, uh, a truth that happened. This is a literary device, if you will, that the Holy Spirit is using to show John what is going on. Let me explain. John is having a vision. If you read about it in Revelation 13.1, let me flip over there real quick, you'll see that he knows this is a vision. It says, and now in my vision I saw, and it goes on saying what he saw. So John is having a vision, and the Holy Spirit is allowing him to see things and to record things in writing of what he is seeing in this vision. Now, what's interesting is that The Holy Spirit is trying to show him a sequence of events. But just like anything that happens in life, sometimes things are happening at the same time. Let me give you an example of a movie. In a movie or in a book, lots of times all the main characters are together. And as long as they're together, they can go from event to event to event. But if they happen to split up due to the plot of the book or the movie then they have to spend time showing what one group is doing and then kind of flashback and show you what the other group is doing. But really, these two things are happening at the same time. The best example of this is J.R.R. R. Tolkien's trilogy of The Lord of the Rings. It starts off the Fellowship of the Ring where everybody's together. By the time you get to the middle book, the second book of the trilogy, the two towers, the group is divided and the author has to spend time showing you what this group is doing and bring them up to a certain point in the timeline. And then he jumps back and shows you what the next group is doing and brings you them up to the same timeline. And then he goes back and forth. And that's what's going on with John. At the end of chapter three, we see the struggle that's going on within the church between the remnant and the hypocritical hypocrisy apostate church that is you know, still in existence and is going on and thriving today. And so we see this tension that's going on between the remnant of the true believers and then the just the real worldly apostate church and how people are leaving the faith. So uh, at this time, John starts having a vision of heaven. Now we don't know when these events actually are going to happen But we do understand it's it's sequential with what happened in chapters one through three. So in other words, it's sometime soon because we are living at the end of chapter three currently, right now. That's what's going on between the remnant and the apostate church. So the events that we're fixing to read in chapter four and five are happening soon. We don't know exactly when they may be happening now. But this is a a device John goes up to heaven to show us what's happening at the same time that the church reaches this point of apostasy on earth. So this is what's going on. And throughout Revelation, you'll see John move back and forth now to show us what's happening in one sphere of reality, whether it be earth or up in heaven, to kind of keep everything sequential showing us what's happening at the same time and what's happening uh, following certain events. So this will really give you a lot of evidence to show uh, a proper interpretation of Revelation as being sequential, that the book of Revelation really is written in a linear fashion, a sequential fashion, uh, so showing the events from beginning to end. And some interpretation will say, oh, well, there's no timeline. But this kind of indicates that there's a strong timeline in it. So that's what's going on. We are in a situation in the book of Revelation, and we're experiencing it now in reality, of the apostate church and people falling away from the faith and the remnant still hanging on. And at this point, John continues his vision by being transported up into heaven in his vision to see What's happening in the throne room of God? Let's go on verse two. And instantly, I was in the spirit, and I saw a throne in heaven, and someone sitting on it. The one sitting on the throne was as brilliant as gemstones, jasper and carnelian, and the glow of an emerald circled. A excuse me, and the glow of an emerald circled his throne like a rainbow. Twenty-four thrones surrounded him, and twenty-four elders sat on them. They were all clothed in white and had gold crowns on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and the rumble of thunder. And in front of the throne were seven lampstands burning flames. These are the seven spirits of God. In front of the throne was a shiny sea of glass sparkling like crystal. So we see the throne room. God is on his throne and we see the lightning and the thunder and everything that's going on. We uh, see the seven spirits of God, which was referred to in Revelation chapter 1. We're not going to go into that again. We've talked about that several times in our study, but it's all right there. And so John is in the throne room of God. But let's talk about these 24 thrones that are up there with God's throne, the 24 elders. Who are these people? Well, we don't know for sure. But we have a little bit of evidence that might give us a guess. And that's all it is, a guess. If anybody tells you they know exactly what's going on in heaven, I'd be a little bit suspect. Because I don't know anybody who's actually been up into heaven and has come back down with a video camera to show us everything that's happened. So this is a vision of John. And so we don't really know what's really happening. Uh, but we can have some good guesses. And one of the guesses I have about these 24 elders is that they might be the 12 leaders of the tribes of Judah, uh, excuse me, the 12 leaders of the tribe of Israel, all 12 tribes from Judah, Benjamin, on and on, of the tribes of Israel, and also the 12 apostles, and that they are up there to uh, facilitate judging of the two main groups of the faith. In other words, the Christians and the Jewish people. And as we all know, Jesus is Jewish. He is the Messiah. He is the fulfillment of the Jewish faith. And there's many Christians up in heaven that are Jewish all the disciples, all the first Christians of the church. And we've talked about this, how the church spread from Jerusalem on. So there's plenty of Jewish believers up in heaven, and there are plenty of Jewish believers now. So what this indicates to me is God bringing both groups of people together, the Jews and the Gentiles, as one temple, one group of people that worship God, just like it talks about in Ephesians. Now, the reason I say this, could be it, is because of a little clue that Jesus gave us in Matthew 19. Listen to this. In Matthew 19, verse 28, we read, and Jesus is talking to his disciples, and they ask him a question, and it says, and Jesus replied, I assure you that when I, the Son of Man, sit upon my glorious throne in the kingdom, you who have been my followers will also sit on the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So, you see, the apostles are told that they will be sitting on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So, this is just a a guess, really. But I'm thinking if that's the case, and we know it is because Jesus said it is, then maybe the other 12 thrones are filled with leaders of the 12 tribes that kind of help facilitate the judging of the Christians, of the church, of the Gentiles, maybe. So, That's all we can guess. We don't know uh, what we mean by judging. Obviously, they don't send anybody to hell. Only God does that. He is the final judge. But maybe it has something to do with administration of uh, rewards for things done. We don't really know. It's all speculative at this point. But what is cool is that there's 24 elders, and it's a good hint from Jesus in Matthew 28, excuse me, Matthew 19, verse 28 that talks about how the disciples may be on 12 of those thrones. Well, let's go on, starting in verse six. In the center and around the throne were four living beings, each covered with eyes front and back. The first of these living beings had the form of a lion. The second looked like an ox. The third had a human face and the fourth had the form of an eagle with wings spread out as though in flight. Each of these beings had six wings, and their wings were covered with eyes inside and out. Day after day and night after night, they keep on saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the one who always was and who always is and who is to come. Now, what are these four living beings, or I should say, who are they? Well, again, we don't know. But this isn't the first time we've seen them in the scripture. No, Isaiah Psalm in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Let's listen to Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, and you'll see that Isaiah also had a glimpse of them when he had a vision of the throne room of God. Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Hovering around him were mighty seraphim. So some type of angelic being, uh, a seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with the remaining two, they flew. In a great chorus, they sang, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the glorious singing shook the temple to its foundations, and the entire sanctuary was filled with smoke. So there's Isaiah singing a glimpse of the throne room of God. And it's the same beings, these same four beings. But it wasn't just him that saw it. Ezekiel has had a vision, and he saw these beings twice in two different visions he had. Let's start with Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 4. As I looked, I saw a great storm coming toward me from the north, driving before it a huge cloud that flashed with lightning and shone with brilliant light. The fire inside the cloud glowed like gleaming amber. From the center of the cloud came four living beings that looked human, except that each had four faces and two pairs of wings. Their legs were straight like human legs, but their feet were were split like calves' feet and shone like burnished bronze. Beneath each of their wings I could see human hands. The wings of each living being touched the wings of the two beings beside it. The living beings were able to fly in any direction without turning around. Each had a human face in the front, the face of a lion on the right side, the face of an ox on the left side, and the face of an eagle at the back. Each had two pairs of outstretched rings. One pair stretched out to touch the wings of the other living beings on either side of it, and the other pair covered its body. So here, Ezekiel is seeing the same beings, okay? Now, he he shows the different faces. He talks about the same faces. The face of a lion, the face of an ox, the face of a human, and the fourth had a form of an eagle. So he talks about the same faces that John saw in Revelation. Now, if you notice, he only sees two pairs of wings at this time, but, you know, let's give Ezekiel a break. He's seeing the throne room of God, and maybe he can't exactly, you know, observe everything perfectly because he's kind of in shock just like Isaiah was. I, I dare to say that if I was up there seeing the throne of God, I probably wouldn't be able to describe anything properly. I have very poor skills of observation. So you have to cut Ezekiel some a uh, little bit of slack there. Now also, Ezekiel chapter 10, he talks about him again. And this time he mentions a little bit more of what he saw, a little bit more detailed observation. Ezekiel 10, starting in verse 12. Both the cherubim and the wheels were covered with eyes. Now he's referring to these four living beings as cherubim. I don't really know the difference in the ranks of cherubim and seraphim. A lot of people write books and speculate, but to be honest with you, there's nothing in the Bible that clearly says The cherubim had eyes all over their bodies, including their hands and their backs and their wings. So there he is; he's seeing all four of them. In verse fourteen, he goes on to say, "Each of the four cherubim had four faces. The first was the face of an ox. The second was a human face. The third, the face of a lion. The fourth was the face of an eagle." So he's seeing the same beings for a second time, the same ones that Isaiah saw, and the same one that John is seeing now in this vision. And we don't exactly know uh, what type of angel they are or what type of being they are, but we do know that when they are up there, they are constantly leading the praise and worship of God. They constantly say, just like Isaiah said, constantly are saying, just like John says in verse 8 of chapter 4 of Revelation, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the one who always was, who is, and who is to come. Now, so they're constantly praising God. And these four beings, something else goes on in John's vision. Let's look at verse 9. Whenever the living beings give glory and honor and thanks to the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, referring to God the Father, Jehovah God, the 24 elders fall down and worship the one who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created everything. And it is your pleasure, it is, excuse me, and it is for your pleasure that they exist and were created. Now this is definitely a passage to meditate on. And that's why it's important for us to read this, even though if we can't get a lot of insight in it, because it is heaven after all. But this shares a, something that I think is important for Christians to meditate on. Constantly, especially now in these dark days when the remnant is struggling to continue and the apostate church seems to just to be falling apart and more and more people leaving the faith. And it's this last phrase that the 24 elders sing to God, for you created everything and it is for your pleasure that they exist and were created. We as Christians need to realize that, that we are created for God's pleasure, not the other way around. Too many of us as Christians, and this is one of the reasons why so many Christians in America are falling into the apostate mindset and leaving the faith. Too many of us as Christians in America think God was created for us, for our well-being, to give us everything we need to make us happy. And too many people treat the Christian faith as something to enhance their life, and that God is like a servant to make their life better. And that is abhorrent to me. There is nothing in Scripture that teaches that. In fact, it's the exact opposite. Just like it says here, God created us, and we are here to serve Him. We are here for His pleasure, and we exist for His pleasure, and we are created for His pleasure. To serve Him. Now, listen to me, brothers and sisters. If you think all it is about the Christian faith is getting saved, so you don't have to go to hell, and accepting Jesus payment for your sins, so you can escape hell and get your bus ticket to heaven, then you're wrong-headed. I'm telling you, you got it all mixed up. That's just the beginning of the wonderful, abundant life. Salvation is a gift we can never repay. Salvation is fantastic. I'm not saying it's not, but being a Christian is so much more than just getting to go to heaven. It's having the Holy Spirit within you, living within you, guiding you day after day, and using you to reach others. If you're a Christian who's just holding onto their bus ticket and not serving God, if you're a Christian that's just sitting on the pew, then you're wrong, and you're helping to develop this apostate church that's going on today. We need to remember that it's not about us, it's about God. That is absolutely right. Several years ago, Rick Warren, a pastor out in California, wrote a book called The Purpose Driven Life. And I remember uh, one of the chapters, in fact, it may be the first chapter, the first four words of the book. It's been so long since I've read it, I can't remember. But these four words are at the start of one of the chapters, and it just blew me away. And it is so true. Now, you may not like that book. You may not like Rick Warren. But I want to tell you something. God had a purpose for that book being written just for these four words being published and broadcast all over the world because that book just sold hundreds of millions of copies. And it's these four words that he wrote. It's not about you. It's not about you. And that is so true. We as Christians need to realize it's not about us. It's about God. It's about us serving God. And we need to realize that this whole thing about being on earth is more than just getting our bus ticket to heaven, but it's supposed to be about serving Christ, making disciples, following the Great Commission. That's the remnant, remember, the Great Commission Church, and doing our part to expand the kingdom of God. Listen to Mark chapter 8, verse 34 through 38. This is Jesus talking. Then he called his disciples and the crowd to come over and listen. If any of you wants to be my follower or my disciple, he told them, you must put aside your selfish ambition, shoulder your cross, and follow me. If you try to keep your life for yourself, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will find true life. And how do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul in the process? So here Jesus is teaching clearly that if you want to be a disciple of his, if you want to be a follower of his, then it means you have to put your life second to his. You have to put your interests second to his. And that is what he means by taking up your cross and following him. You, if you want to have true life, the essence of life while here on earth as a Christian, then you've got to realize you must put Jesus first, his kingdom first, and serve him with all of your energy, all of your strength. That's right. If you do that and you put Jesus as top priority, then you are in putting things in the proper perspective. And that's what John is saying here, that we need to realize. That's why I think the Holy Spirit allowed John to see the throne room. When they said, the 24 elders said, for you created everything, it is for your pleasure that they exist and were created. That's a truth we need to reflect on. It's not about us. It's about God. Rick Warren was right. John, the Holy Spirit, is saying it here in Revelation chapter 4. And Jesus spoke those same words in the Gospel of Mark and the other Gospels. It's not about us, brother and sister. It's about Jesus and serving him, not just getting a bus ticket to heaven. Now let's go on to Revelation chapter 5, verse 1. As we continue to see the ceremony of opening up the seals, And I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. There was writing on the inside and the outside of the scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals on this scroll and unroll it? But no one in heaven and on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. Then I wept because no one could be found who is worthy to open up the scroll and read it. But one of the 24 elders said to me, stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has conquered. He is worthy to open the scroll and break its seven seals. And I looked. And I saw a lamb that had been killed, but was now standing between the throne and the four living beings, and among the twenty-four elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, that are sent out into every part of the earth. He stepped forward and took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. And as he took the scroll, the four living beings and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb. Each one of them had a heart. And they held gold bowls filled with incense, the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song with these words. You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it. For you were killed and your blood has ransomed people for God, for every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have caused them to become God's kingdom and his priests. They will reign on the earth. Now, this is obviously showing that there is a scroll. And what this scroll represents, we'll talk about in a little bit, but on this scroll are seven seals. You see, they used to roll the scrolls up, a legal document, and they would put seals on it every so often to keep it from unrolling because it was a legal document, kind of like a title deed, let's say, for instance, to some land, and they would put seals on it to keep it from unrolling. And if you wanted to read part of it, you'd break off the seal, read a section. And if you want to read the next section of the contract, you'd break that seal and unroll it some more. But these seals kept it from unrolling and protected it and kept it secure since it was a legal document. Now, John is crying because he understands that this scroll, for some reason, has something to do with the resolution of the whole kingdom of Christ. It has something to do with the Christians finally be able to go to heaven. It has something to do with all that the prophecies of the Old Testament about Jesus reigning as king finally coming into fruition. And who is the lamb that was dead and rose again, who has the seven spirits of God? Well, that's pretty clear, isn't it? It's Jesus Jesus was the one that died for our sins and rose again. And he already described himself as someone who had the seven spirits of God. And we've talked about that in Revelation chapter 1. And so all the elders and all of heaven is singing praises to him, saying, you're worthy to take the scroll. Now, there's a little bit of something here we need to talk about. Why is the scroll so important? Why is breaking the seal so important? Why is John weeping about it when we know from reading Revelation that some of these things that happen with the seals are kind of bad? Well, we'll talk more about this next session, but let me suffice it to say this. John knew this was a part of resolving everything in the prophetic world, that once And for all, Jesus was going to take his throne as king because of the scroll. Now let's look at the tail end of verse 10. And you have caused them to become God's kingdom and his priests, and they will reign on the earth. See, this is hinting at that fulfillment of all the prophecies. The kingdom of Christ on earth is commonly called the millennial kingdom. And we'll talk more about that later on in Revelation when we get to that sequence of events. But this is a little bit of foreshadowing talking about what's going on because this has been prophesied throughout the Old Testament and Jesus talked about it throughout the Gospels. And John sees that this is the beginning of Jesus taking his throne, taking the deed of earth taking it from the enemy once and for all, because this is the enemy's world. As we know, it was given to him. He said that when he was tempting Jesus in the wilderness. And he's going to seize it back. And he's going to put his throne on earth for a thousand years. This is what it's all talking about. And this is why this scroll is so important. And this is why John was weeping, because he was afraid everything was just going to be held in stagnation and nothing was going to be resolved. But God is at work. He's constantly moving forward on his calendar, and it is going to happen one day. And John rejoiced when the Lamb came to seize that scroll and break open the seals. Let's go on. Verse 11. Then I looked again and I heard the singing of thousands and millions of angels around the throne and the living beings and the elders. So now all of heaven, millions of angels, the 24 elders, the four beings, everybody in heaven is praising and singing a mighty chorus. Verse 12, they sang in a mighty chorus, the lamb is worthy, the lamb who was killed. He is worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor, and glory, and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea. They also sang blessing, and honor, and glory, and power, and belong to the one sitting on the throne, and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four living beings said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped. God and the Lamb. Now, this is a spectacular crescendo of praise because when Jesus takes that scroll, he's saying, It's time. It's time for me to ascend to my kingdom, to take the throne of my kingdom. And this is all involved in him reclaiming his bride. This is God's way of saying to the bridegroom, Jesus, It's time to go get your bride. It's all involved in this. It's a wonderful time when finally heaven says, and the Father says to the Son, it's time. Go get your bride, and let's take your throne. And that is the prophecies throughout the Old Testament and the New and the Gospels that Jesus talked about, and it's taking place. This is John seeing the beginning of it, and that's why there's a ceremony. And the reason I wanted you to hear these passages, and I want you to reflect on them and read them often. You may not understand everything in there. No one can, because it's talking about heaven. But the main point is that Jesus is the king of kings, and all of heaven rejoices when he starts taking his throne and taking his kingdom. In fact, Look at verse 14 of chapter five. The four living beings said, amen. Remember, Jesus said he was the amen. We studied that a few sessions back. And the four living beings are saying, amen, so let it be. In other words, they're saying, God is always in control. Jesus is the King of Kings. Psalm chapter two is a beautiful Psalm. And it relates, I think, to this scene up in heaven. I don't think David had a vision or anything, but he's talking in a prophetic psalm here about what's going to happen one day with God, the Messiah ruling. Let's listen to this. Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage? Why do the people waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepare for battle. The rulers plot together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains they cry and free ourselves from this slavery but the one who rules in heaven laughs the lord scoffs at them then in anger he rebukes them terrifying them with his fierce fury for the lord declares i have placed my chosen king on the throne in jerusalem my holy city the king proclaims the Lord's decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I become your father. Only ask and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the ends of the earth as your possession. You'll break them with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. Now then, you kings, act wisely. But be warned, you rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with reverent fear and rejoice with trembling. Submit to God's royal son or he will become angry and you will be destroyed in the midst of your pursuits for his anger can flare up in an instant. But what joy for all who find protection in him. This too echoes what John is seeing in his vision up in the throne room of God. That Jesus is the King of Kings. And one day he will rule with complete justice, with complete authority. And that is something we as Christians can look forward to. And that is also something that those who are rebelling against God need to be warned about because one day they will face the real King. Now, brothers and sisters, Maybe you're as discouraged as I am about seeing what's going on in our nation. Maybe you're discouraged about all the riots and all the uh attacks that are going on on our police. Maybe you're upset about how our society seems to be collapsing, and nobody has respect for God, for justice, for the law, for anything in our society, it seems, anymore. It seems like the remnant is sorely being attacked, and and we're frightened, aren't we? The remnant hanging on to the true Christian faith is seeing their society collapse. Now, I don't know if this is because Jesus is going to come back soon, or if this is just the collapse of our society. No one knows until there's more signs that God indicates what is really going on with his calendar. But either way, I think we can take encouragement from this passage. Because no matter how bad it gets, we as Christians, we as the remnant, know that Jesus is the one true king. He is the great amen. He will take his throne one day. And he, with complete mercy and justice, come and get all the true believers. And he will judge with complete and total justice the wicked. And he will stop what's going on once and for all. And he will finally defeat the enemy. And that's what every believer longs for deep down in their heart. And that's what John was longing for. And that's why he wept when he thought no one would come and open up the scroll. And that God was going to delay things even longer. Well, unfortunately for John, it went on for a couple thousand years. But now, We are in the days of the apostate church and of the Great Commission Church, and we are seeing some things unfold, and we can take encouragement because Jesus is the King of Kings, and one day, maybe even in our lifetime, he will come for his bride, and he will allow God to pour out the wrath of judgment on earth during the seven-year time of Jacob's distress, and then he will take his throne And conquer the enemy once and for all. That is what we're looking at. And that is what the scrolls starts unleashing when each seal is broken. So take courage in that. Your Savior, your King, your Lord God is in control. No matter how dark the days are, He is in control. He is the great Amen. And we can sing praises to him in confidence. In the meantime, keep your eyes to the sky. Because it could be coming soon. And read your Bible.
0: Thank you for listening to Todd Talks Bible sponsored by Church Discipleship Ministries. For more information, please visit churchdiscipleshipministries.com or check today's show notes for the link. Our teachings are also available on YouTube. Simply search for Todd Talks Bible. I'm Brian Race, encouraging you to subscribe to this podcast so you'll never miss an episode. Also consider sharing this timely teaching with someone you believe needs to hear it. Until next time, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.